You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We've been walking through, and we're actually almost done with this section, which is, I don't know if that's exciting or crazy, Uh, but we're in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, next week, we'll actually finish up the section, and then we'll be jumping into the next section, which starts in verse 11. But again, we've been, we've been talking about the demonstration of God, the power of God being demonstrated in your life. And uh, just for the sake of review, I just want to kind of walk through chapter 2 again with you, just to keep this fresh in our mind as we look at verse 10. Uh, in the first three verses, Paul is talking about the fact that you were dead in your trespasses. And here you are, you are living in sin you're just living, uh, living under the authority, the mindset of the world. You're just wrapped up in the culture. And Paul says how he defines it is you were dead. Now we understand we're not dead physically. We're talking about dead spiritually. And in the middle of all that, verse four, Paul writes, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved. So think about this. In this overwhelming demonstration of the power of God, here you are, deader than a doornail, and what does God do? He reaches into your spiritual deadness and brings you from spiritual death and brings you into spiritual life. That is incredible. I mean, that's like, please stay seated, but you can wave your white hankies if you want to. I mean, that, that's great news. And, and why did he save us or how did he save us? Well, I love what, well, I love what Paul says. That God is rich in mercy, full of great love with which he loved us, and that by grace you have been saved. And we walked through this a couple of uh, sessions ago, but this in verse 5 you have this idea that uh, he made us alive. Verse 6, he raised us up, and then he seated us. And it's interesting that all three of those words has this prefix on it, which is this idea of with. In other words, how did he make us alive? He made us alive with Jesus. Well, how did he raise us up? He raised us up with Jesus. Well, how did he seat us? Well, he seated us with Jesus. And what you get is this tone. Of course, this is all through Paul's epistles. But the tone of Paul is everything that God is doing in your life only happens in Jesus. In other words, he's not going to do something in your life that he's not going to do in you through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the big deal that God is wanting to do in your life. Uh, you can see that in the blessing section of chapter one, that every single blessing that God has for you, and isn't it an encouragement that you are blessed? In fact, you, you don't just get one blessing. Paul goes, you know, I mean, he just has a whole list, blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And yet every single blessing that God has for you is found in one place, Jesus So if God is going to give you blessing, he doesn't give you a blessing. He gives you Jesus, which becomes your blessing. Hey, if you need love, God doesn't give you love. He gives you Jesus, who is love. Hey, if you need peace, God doesn't give you peace. He gives you Jesus, who becomes your peace, because he is the Prince of Peace. And it's amazing, again, as he's working in our life in this salvific work, and the fact that we've been uh, made alive, we've been raised, and we've been seated, all of that is smack dab in the middle of Jesus. I think that's phenomenal. Uh, Then in verse seven, he says, the whole purpose of this salvific work, the whole reason why God is doing this is verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show, it's the word prove 
the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what God is going to be doing for all eternity? God, for all eternity, is going to be pointing to humanity and saying, see that? That is my proof of my goodness and my kindness. That, hey, if you want to see the richness of my grace, oh, right there, look at that. And you and I get to be, you and I get to be the demonstration of the, as Paul says, the surpassing riches of his grace. That it's the superlative abundance of his grace. That, that when you think about, oh, what is a great picture of the grace of God? Just look in the mirror. Because what God has done in your life is, is supposed to be the greatest expression, the demonstration, the proof of his grace. That's exciting. Which would be helpful if we remembered that <laughs> when we looked in the mirror. But then verse 8, again, verse 8, uh, he's, he's giving some clarity to this idea of this salvation. And we walked through this, uh, this last session or so. Verse 8 again says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And again, Paul is making this very explicit that the whole salvation idea is, it is this is not nothing you accomplished. This is nothing that you could have pulled off. This wasn't because of your talent. This wasn't because of your good looks. Hey, this wasn't because of your ability. This wasn't because of you anything. Well, well how did this happen? It was a gift. And again, this whole idea of salvation, it's really important to remember that salvation isn't merely forgiveness of my sins. As phenomenal as that is. Praise the Lord. But it's not merely forgiveness of my sins. Yes, it's forgiveness of my sins, but it's also the, for, it's the, I'll, I'll say it this way. It's the breaking of the power of sin. In other words, it's not just the deeds that God forgives, the sins. He breaks the power of sin in your life. Well, why is that so important? <laughs> if God, if all God did was, was forgive the sins and didn't break the power then you have this mechanism, you have this function, you have this uh, warehouse, uh, a machine shop. I don't know what the language you want to use, but you have this production of more and more sins. In other words, it's, it's the power of sin that keeps us sinning. So yes, God forgives us of our sins, but then he also reaches in and he breaks the shackles of sin itself so that you don't have to keep on sinning. That is awesome. Now, I'm not talking about perfection in the sense that you'll never have issues again. I'm not saying that because, hey, we live in a sin-scarred body and there's times that I don't intend to, but hey, there's things that God is going to be sanctifying my life and he's going to revealing sin in my life. I get that. And that's probably going to be lifelong. But isn't it amazing that the power of sin in your life has been broken? That there's not this production of sin like you lived in the world. Hey, hey before you came to Christ, there was just this compulsory. You just had to, you just, there was just this engine that was creating sin all the time. And God dealt with the sins. He forgave that, but he also dealt with the power. That's really important. That's awesome. Please contain yourselves. Now, how am I saved? Paul says you are saved by grace through faith. That this grace idea, again, uh, if you even want to put the Holy Spirit, you could put that in because the Holy Spirit is the, the one who is giving the grace. I don't know if that made any sense. 
Hey, but when you look at the grace in your life, again, the grace in your life isn't the for, just mere forgiveness. Grace is also the empowerment to keep living the way you're supposed to live. Uh, last time we were talking about the, the difference between big S and small S salvation, right? You come to Christ, uh, God radically changes your life. We say that, woo, you are saved, right? That's big S salvation. But you recognize that today you need salvation, that there's temptations, there are trials or situations, there are people, there are finances, there is culture, there is economy, there is politics, there's, I mean, you can start going down the list, right? There's all these things and I'm going to need God's grace to function and to live and to think and to behave the way I'm supposed to behave and live and function. What is that? That's grace. So grace is the forgiveness. So yes, you're saved by grace, but I also live by grace. I function by grace. I, I just live in the reality of grace. And all of this comes about, Paul says, through faith. Again, faith, it's interesting when you look at the idea of faith. Faith is an action, but it's not really an action. Which gets confusing. In other words, do you do faith? Yes, sort of. Really, the word for faith is it's, it's this idea of uh, belief. It's this idea of trust. Which is meaning you are doing something, but you're not really doing anything. Uh, the best definition I've heard of faith, again, is this idea of invoking the activity of a second party. So here you are, you, you check your pockets, you don't have it within you. So you turn your gaze upon God who has it. He has what you need. And in faith, you say, God, I can't do this, but I need you. So you come and do the very thing that I cannot do. And I live by faith. So I am doing something. I'm putting my trust. I'm putting my belief. I'm putting my weight upon him, but he's the one who's actually doing all the action. So it is an action, but it's not an action. So how am I saved? Well, I am saved when I realize that I cannot save myself and I can't pull it off and I can't live the way I'm supposed to live. So I turn to God and say, God, you're going to have to do this to me. You're going to have to bring about salvation. You're going to have to bring about my life. You're going to have to, you know, sustain me. You're going to have to somehow, you know, not let me punch my neighbor because <laughs> I really want to punch my neighbor. You know, it's that kind of a, that I need, God, I need you for this moment. And I am doing something because I'm putting my trust in him and I'm believing in him for this moment, but really he's the one doing all the action. So it is an action, but it's not an action. In fact, Paul clarifies that for us. Because he says, this is not of yourself. In other words, yes, you're doing faith, but, but, but you cannot claim the fact that you've saved yourself. You, you cannot say that. Well, I had faith. <laughs> yeah, but even your faith is, is just diddly squat. I mean, you, I mean, you can't even have faith properly without Jesus. So you cannot, there's no option for you to claim and say, woo, look at me, look at me. Hey, I can boast in the fact that I have salvation. Paul says you have, you have no ability to do that because you did not bring this about. How did this come about? He brought it about. It was a gift. Well, was, wasn't I a part of this? Yes, you were a part of it in that you put your trust in him, but really you're the one just receiving everything. Hey, you just get the benefit of this whole thing. You just relax in him. And you had no, you had nothing to do with your salvation outside of Jesus. I need you. But even that he stirred your heart to do. So, Hey, you have no, Hey, you have nothing in this. You merely received this thing. So you have no position to boast. 
fact, if there is any boasting, you boast in Jesus. Isn't he good? Now, look at verse 10. Uh, That was all introduction. Sorry. (laughs) But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, next week, we're going to look at the, the bulk of this verse and talk about the fact that you were made for good works. So I just, I just want you to set that aside for one second. We'll, we'll, you need to understand that in, in light of the context. And it's probably not at all what you're thinking of. So we'll just leave that for next week. But what I want to focus on is this very first section of verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Uh, the word there for, again, goes back to this idea of he's describing the reason or the purpose for this whole thing taking place. So Paul is saying, hey, you had nothing to do with your salvation. You merely received this thing. It was a gift of God. And, ha- and how do we live? We live by grace through faith. But this, hey, this is all Jesus. And Paul gives us the explanation to this thing. And he says, for, here's the reason, we are his workmanship. Uh, isn't it interesting that when you, when you think about poetry, poetry, I've been told, is the highest form of communication. Uh, it's, it's the highest form of human language. Uh, which is why the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, they're, they're, they're exquisite. They're, they're, they're immense. Why? Because poetry is the highest form of human language. Uh, Mother's Day, Valentine's, right? On these kind of holidays, right? You do not merely get some little, you don't just write a note, right? You get poetry, and since most of us can't write poetry, we go to Hallmark, right? And Hallmark gives us some poetry, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, we love you, hoo hoo hoo, right? Or whatever, right? Whatever it is you know, for you, right? And, and, we, and we, allow, we allow Hallmark to give us poetry. Why? Because we're trying to express something that's deep within us, but we don't want to just use just mere language because, you know, mere language is good, but we want to say something even greater than that, so we use poetry, now, I don't know if you read poetry. Uh, poetry seems like it's a slowly dying thing in our culture. We just don't have the affection for poetry like we used to. Uh, but, and I don't read poetry all the time. But I really love Amy Carmichael's poetry. I don't know if you've ever read Amy Carmichael's poetry. She's just, she had this way with words to talk about the reality of Jesus. Let me give you one of her poems. It's called uh, Love's Channel. <clears throat> she says, What wouldst thou that I should do for thee My Lord, my Savior, pour your love through me. A mountain river, when its strings run dry, so but for you, fountain of love, am I. If there be any hindrance, sweep it all away. O love eternal, pour through me, I pray. It's just simple, but it's, God, I need you. And if there's anything blocking your demonstration of love in my life, get rid of it. And so Amy Carmichael, Amy Carmichael, here she is a missionary in India. She says, I need to express the realities, the triumph of, of, of the gospel. So what would she do? She would write poetry. Why? Because, again, it, it elevates the language. It's interesting when, when we come into verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That word for workmanship, oh, this just delights my heart to no end. The word for workmanship in the Greek is the Greek word poema. Isn't that neat? Poema, which is where we get the English word 
poem. Uh, this word poema in the New Testament, it only shows up two times. It shows up a few times in the Old Testament. But this word workmanship or poema shows up two times. This one obviously being one of those. So think about what Paul is saying here. He says, let me give you the reason for why God is doing all this salvific work. Let me explain the fact that you had no part in this. This was all Jesus. And he says, oh, because we are his poem. We are his poetry. Isn't that a neat thought? That word we are, by the way, is a simple statement of fact. In other words, this isn't maybe you are, maybe you're not. See, that's not in this passage. In this passage, it's a simple statement of fact. You are God's poetry. Do you know how God sees you? He sees you as a masterpiece. He sees you as something he has crafted. He has seen you something that he has bubbled forth from within him. He sees you as his poetry. Uh, The root word for poema is my second all-time favorite Greek word. So my all-time favorite Greek word is gnosko. My second all-time favorite Greek word is poieo. Poieo, which is where this word poema comes out of the word poieo. So if you're, if you're going to understand poema, uh, you've got to understand poieo. I know some of you are looking already lost. It's like a Greek lesson this morning. <laughs> Just stay with me. Uh, poema, right? Po- this idea of poem comes from the root word poieo. So at the very heart of this poema idea is poieo. Now, to understand poieo properly, I want to show you two pictures. Uh, there are two, there are mainly two different words in the New Testament for this idea of doing something. Hey, I'm going to go do something. Oh, you have a choice of two words in Greek for the most part. One of them is the word prazo. Now, prazo has this idea of doing. I did it. Hey, this is done. I prazoed it. But what's interesting about prazo, it has this idea of force. It has this idea of have to. It has this idea of obligation. It has this idea of like, ah, oh, bummer. When's the break? And if you want an image, because I'm a, I'm a picture person, this, this helps me. The, the best illustration for this that I know of is like barn painting or fence painting. Nobody ever wakes up and goes, oh, I'm going to repaint my fence today. Uh, I've got a fence in my backyard. I've looked at it many times. I thought, you know what? I'd love to repaint that thing. And then I start thinking about what that actually means. And I start to think about all the paint I'd have to buy. And I start to look at all the time it's going to take. And I talk myself out of it really quickly. Because <laughs> this is more than a 20-minute job. I mean, just getting the paint and pulling it out is going to be 20 minutes. I mean, this is going to be an all-day job. It's the middle of summer. There's no way I'm going to repaint my fence. But let's just imagine you're going to paint your fence. And you wake up and you're like, oh, all right, today's the day. Here we go. And you grab your paint bucket, you get your paintbrush, you dip, you dip your paintbrush in the, in the paint and you just start just up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down all day long. After a while, you know, you start looking at your watch going, how much longer? And you realize, you know, it's been forever, but the watch tells you it's been five minutes, you know, and you're just like, hey, when's my break? And how much more time do I got to do this thing? And you, you start to look at all the expense of the fence you've got to do. And you're just like, I don't think I can do much more of this, right? So you do the whole Tom Sawyer Huckleberry Finn thing and you hire all the neighborhood kids to come and help you. And I mean, it's just, this thing gets miserable. That's this idea of prazo. Now I painted my fence, but how did I paint my fence? I prazoed it. Hey, I gritted my teeth. I, hey, it was an obligation. I pulled it. I mean, it got done. Praise the Lord. But hey, I, I just, I, I forced it. That's not this idea. 
uh, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, hey, you do the works of your father, the devil. Well, how are they doing the religious activities? What, what was the what was the, what was the one of Jesus's big complaints against the Pharisees? They were going through the motions. Hey, they were doing all the obligation stuff. Hey, they were doing the law. But how were they doing the law? All right, I'm going to do the law. I'm going to grip my teeth, pull this thing off. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It's a have to thing. That's prazo. Now, poyeo oh, is a whole different picture. Poyeo is not doing something from obligation. It is still doing. You translate it doing, did, or done. So you're still doing something, but you're doing something from a whole different motivation. Uh, an artist. Uh, an artist sleeps in, right? Because I, I don't know of a single artist who gets up early. Right. But, if, you know, after you hit the alarm clock a few times, you know, you finally wake up, you stretch, you go down to your studio, you open up the big, you know, Florida, Florida ceiling uh, windows and you just, oh, here we go. And you grab your canvas and you start mixing some of your paints and you go, hmm, what am I going to paint today? And from the inside of who you are, you just go, oh, I got it. I got this. Oh, I got something. And so you dip your paintbrush and just whoosh, 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 and you create this masterpiece. And you go up to the artist and you say, wow, how, how did you come up with that? And they say, I don't know. Somehow it was just, it was just from the insides of who I was. It just, somehow the insides came outward in an expression. And that's this, that's this word poyeo. It's the inside expressing itself on the outside. It's this, I did it, but how did I do it? I, you know, an artist Five, six hours could go by and they, they never once look at their clock. They forget about lunch. They don't worry about anything. Why? Because it's just, there's something flowing from the inside of them. They just can't help themselves. They just, ah, and you try to say, hey, could you take a break? And they're like, why would I want to take a break? Do you know what a different picture that is from this idea of prazo? I mean, prazo is obligation. Prazo is have to. Prazo is grit your teeth. Poyao is, it's life. It's rejuvenating. It's just, it's fun. It's a masterpiece kind of stuff. It's interesting. You, you turn to the book of James, James over and over and over in the book of James, James tells you, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Hey, if you call yourself a Christian, Hey, you better show forth your Christianity by your works. And you're like, Oh, I thought it wasn't by works, but do you know what word James uses over and over and over again in the book of James to talk about doing things and doing the works and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't use the word prazo. He uses the word poyeo. How do I do the works of Christianity? I don't do them out of obligation. I do them because, oh, I just can't help myself. I do them because, oh, there's just something is churning within me. And I just, I can't stop myself. I just got to do it. Wouldn't it be neat if Christianity was like that? That when we prayed, it wasn't as well, we better gather and pray. Why? Because we got to. If we don't pray for our food. We're going to get poisoned and God's going to kill us. What, what if, what if reading our Bible, what if evangelism, what if prayer wasn't a have to obligation? Well, I'm going to do it. All right, let's buckle down and pull this thing off. What if the realities of the Christian life came out of the life itself that you just couldn't help yourself? It's interesting. The word in scripture for trees bearing fruit is the word poyeo. Trees don't do fruit, they bear fruit. They poyeo fruit. 
It just comes from the inside of who they are. They trees, a healthy tree just cannot help itself. If it's a healthy tree at a certain time of the year, it just the inside life of the tree is going to express itself out in fruit. It just can't help itself. See, you as a Christian are to poyeo. So take all of that and come back into our passage here. Verse 10 says, for we are his poema. We are his poem. We are his poetry. Do you know what that's really saying? Uh, Here's God. He's going to create humanity. That was not a have to for him. Hey, no one was pulling his arm behind his back saying, you better create humanity. There was something going on in the insides of who he was. And he just, oh, I just cannot help myself. So what what am I going to do? I'm going to create humanity. Hey, his redemptive work in your life. Do you know what the redemptive work in your life, according to Paul, is? It is his masterpiece. This this is the, the insides of God expressing itself out through salvation. It's interesting when you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, when you look it up in the Greek, it says, in the beginning, God poyaoed the world. See, God creating the world was not a prazo thing. God creating the world was not a have to thing. God creating the world was not a, well, I'm obligated. How did God create the world? It's like he just went, ah, I can't help myself. I'm going to create something. Let there be. And everything you see came out of the very heart of who God is. Out of this poyao of God. In fact, when you look at this other word, other time this word shows up for workmanship, it shows up in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, this poyao idea. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are poema, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So again, Paul is linking this idea of God poyaoing the world. And Paul says, it wasn't just he that he poyaoed the world. The world is God's poetry. That when you look at the world, Hey, what what do you see? You see this masterpiece that God has created. You see this anthem that he has written. You you, you see this love song that has been declared. You you see this poem. Isn't that phenomenal? I I really like uh, when you look at this idea that that, that this is all of his work. That this salvation idea that, that, again, verse 7, 8, and 9. Hey, you cannot claim salvation for yourself. That, that, that God is doing this salvific work, that this is all of him. You cannot boast in this thing. Why? Because you had no part of it. Why? Because, hey, this was his workmanship. This was his work. This was his poetry. I, I love what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He says, it is God who is the workman. It is God who is active. How is it possible that anyone can read an open Bible, starting with the words, in the beginning, and then go on to think, of the whole thing as the activity of man. It is God who acts everywhere. He made man. He made the world. Man sinned. God went after him. It is God who called Abraham. It is God who created the kings. It is God who called the prophets. It is God who gave the law. It is God who gave the instructions about building the tabernacle and the temple. And it was God who in the fullness of the times sent forth his son. It is God's workmanship, his poetry. God's activity from beginning to end. Yet we persist in thinking of God as being more or less passive and simply ready to respond to what we do and what we desire. 
In other words, what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is how oftentimes we come to the scriptures and just think that God is this Santa Claus figure that we can control and manipulate, that he just merely responds to us. When this whole book is about his activity and his accomplishments and what he is doing, and we are the ones who are receiving it all. Why? This is his workmanship. That when God created the world, what is it? That, that was from the insides of who he is. He just couldn't help himself. I got to express this. And from the insides of who he is, he created the world. And again, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, think about this. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. That, that when you look at the masterpiece, it's not just for the sake of the masterpiece. The masterpiece reveals the heart and the character of the master painter, of the poet. And so Paul says, <clears throat> being understood by the things that were poemed, I just made up a word, but poema, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. Paul says, no one has an excuse to say, well, I didn't know about God. Why? Because creation is yelling, saying, there is a God. Why? Because when we look at creation, we're seeing the poetry, the masterpiece, the, 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 the picture of what he's doing. In fact, it's interesting, this word poema has this idea back in that day of uh, a potter. So a potter takes some clay and the potter forms the clay into some sort of a pot. And what did he do? He poemed the pot. He created this masterpiece, this product. He made it. He, well, how, why does it have this little dent on it? I don't know, but the, the master potter just decided to put, whoop, put, a, put a little finger thing there. And it's just, it's an expression of who he is down deep in his heart. This, this isn't like a factory line where he's making pots. This is, he is shaping each and every one individually. That's this idea of poema. So we begin to think of the fact that here's God, he creates the entire universe. And what is he doing? He's putting this thumbprint on every single thing. He, he's saying, this is my poetry. Hey, this is my expression. Hey, this is my heart. So then when you, when you look then at creation, what you see is that creation is the first masterpiece, the first expression, the first demonstration of the very heart of who he is. Hey, creation shows his invisible attributes. The creation shows his power. The creation shows the reality of the Godhead. But isn't it an amazing thought that if creation was God's first masterpiece, then what Paul is telling us in verse 10 is that you and his salvific work in your life is his second masterpiece. That, that just as creation is to demonstrate the reality of the creator, so your life is to demonstrate the reality of your savior. That, that, that just as creation is the poetry of God, so too you are the poetry of God. I really I thought this was interesting. I was, thought it would be interesting to look online just to see what a poet would say is the importance of poetry. So all I did was a quick Google search. And I said, the importance of poetry to a poet. <laughs> I was curious what it would say. Uh, so this was the very first thing that came up. I thought this was so cool to me. So here, here's a poet. Her name is Alice. This is what she says about the importance of poetry. She says, poet, this is secular. For clarity's sake. But just ponder this in light of what we're talking about. She says, poetry is so important because it helps us understand and appreciate the world around us. Poetry's strength lies in its ability to shed a sideways light on the world so that the truth sneaks up on you. Poetry teaches us how to live. 
I said, that was actually really interesting. If we are God's poetry, you realize what it does then is, hey, this is important because as the, the poetry helps us understand something, well, how, what, at least in our context, what is the poetry helping us understand? The poet. Hey, the, poet's, the poetry strength lies in its ability for truth to be revealed. It's not always clear. Sometimes it's hidden. But truth is being revealed through the poetry. Isn't that interesting about your life? And I love what she said. Poetry teaches us how to live. Poetry showcases life. Do you know what your life is supposed to do as a Christian? Your life is the poetry of God. That your life is the declaration of who he is. Your life is to be the expression of who he is in the world today. So really quick, two two implications of this. Number one, if we are his workmanship, if we are his poema, the number one, the focus of your life is not to be you. It's to be him. The purpose of poetry isn't just for you to ponder the poetry. The purpose of poetry is to see the message and the poet behind the poetry. So, hey, don't get wrapped up in your life. Wouldn't it be interesting if your life was a showcase to the reality of who God is? Uh, Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, if you have time today, I encourage you to read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But I'll just read verses 5 through 10. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul says, you know what we proclaim? Do you know what we declare with our lives and lips? Jesus Christ is Lord. He goes on and says, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's a phenomenal verse. But we have this treasure. What treasure? The knowledge and the glory of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body of, in the, body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested, demonstrated in our bodies. Paul says, do you know what's happening in you? That there is a message being proclaimed through your life. That there is something being manifested and demonstrated. What is that? The life of Jesus. And he says, you are a jar of clay. And again, we've walked through this so many times, but that word for jar of clay really means a cracked pot. That here is this vessel, there, here's this pot, but this pot has a problem with it. Oh, no. There's a big crack running down the side. And you could say, well, then how good is that pot? Because, hey, if you put water in the pot, the water is going to drain out of the pot. And Paul says, exactly. Hey, that's why we're going to rejoice. Why? Because we got a big crack in ourselves. And the bigger the crack, the more that's going to ooze out of us. So God has taken his, his life and the knowledge of, of himself and his glory and shoved it into you. But, uh-oh, there's a, there's a crack, which means it's going to ooze out to the world around you. Which is why, which right now this will be a great verse to memorize, when Paul says we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. 
Hey, there may be some perplexion, but we are not driven to despair. Yes, there may be some persecution, but we are not forsaken. Yes, we may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. Why? Because we have the life within us. And hey, the more they crush, the bigger the crack opens up, which means the more Jesus is going to come out. That's encouraging. So wouldn't it be interesting if you begin to recognize that you are God's workmanship, you are his poetry to this world, so that as you were living your life, what should the world see in your life? Not you, but him. He's the poet. And your life merely should be a declaration, which takes me to the second idea of what would happen if your life was merely a big finger pointing to Jesus. That in this culture, in this day and age, in this time period of life, what, what if all of our lives was a, it was a declaration, a demonstration of who he is? That Yes, my life wasn't focused on me. My life is focused on him. But what if my life to this world was a demonstration of him? David goes after Goliath. And as he's looking at this mammoth of a man, of course, Goliath, you know, kind of shouts at him and tries to taunt him. And David says, buddy, your, your head's coming off today. Your body's going to be food for birds so that this world knows that God is who he is. And hey, when, when Goliath's head was cut off, what do the people declare? <laughs> God is God. I mean, Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? He's, he's facing these prophets of Baal. And when the fire came down and lit up the sacrifice and the, the wood on the altar and even sucked up the water in the trench, the people fell down on the ground and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See, there was something going on in the life of Elijah that, that when God showcased himself through the life of Elijah, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that God is who he is. And wouldn't it be amazing in this day, in this culture, in this, as, as things get darker and darker, what the world saw was not you. What the world saw was a declaration of him. And yes, the, the world might beat you down, but all it did was open up a greater crack for him to be revealed. Right? It's that old illustration of the toothpaste tube. Right? You squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what comes out? Toothpaste. Why? Well, it was being squeezed. No, 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 no. Why did toothpaste come out of the tube? Because toothpaste was in the tube. The issue is not the squeezing. We all will be squeezed. So that's not the issue. The issue is not the squeezing. The issue is when we are squeezed, what's going to come out of us? And wouldn't it be amazing if every squeeze, every perplexion, every struck down, every affliction, every hardship in your life only caused you to glorify him more? That every squeezing only caused him to be revealed even more? You are God's poetry. That you are God's declaration of his salvific work in this day and age. If you look back at verse 7, he says that in the coming ages, God might prove, showcase the superlative abundance of his grace and his kindness toward us in Jesus. And that for all eternity, God's going to be pointing at us saying, oh, there's a picture of my grace. That is a picture of my grace right there. Look at that. That's a picture of my grace. Do you realize he's wanting to do that right now? Why? Because we are his poetry. We are his declaration to this world that he is a God who is full of kindness and mercy and love. And he wants to save us with a great love. He wants to save us by grace through faith. And we get to be that demonstration, that poem in the world today. If there's ever a time for poetry to come back on the stage of time, 
I'm not, I'm not just talking about poetry, but this poetry. Ever a time for this kind of poetry to be declared in our world? This is the hour. This is the hour we need this poetry to be declared. I'm God's. Can't you see him? And like Amy Carmichael said earlier, if there's anything in our life that's hindering him to be seen, if there's anything in our life that's pointing to us and not him, may we allow him to get rid of it in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a mind-boggling thought to me that that you are not just a poet, but that you have been crafting from the insides of who you are poetry. That this wasn't like going down to the Hallmark store and just pulling out a card. You, you were the one writing the poetry afresh. And that poetry is us. Lord, I love looking at nature and I'm just so overwhelmed by the reality of the beauty and the majesty of, of what you have created. And Paul says that that is a picture of your poetry. And if creation, as beautiful as it is and as majestic as it is, is is merely a picture of your poetry, how much more is the salvation of the saints? How much more is, is your grace working through the life of a Christian a picture of your, uh, your, your masterpiece, your, your poetry? Lord, somehow could you, could you put it upon our minds? That we are not merely an accident. We weren't a second thought. We weren't just a whoops. We weren't a, oh, what are we going to do with him? That, that what we are is the masterpiece of who you are. That, that we are the poetry of God. That, that your salvific work in our life, this we are saved by grace through faith, is merely a picture, a, a demonstration. This gift that you have given us, not through our own work, but through your own redemptive ability in our, in our lives is merely the declaration. This, this superlative abundance of your grace is, is, is the picture, the pinnacle of your, of your majesty, of your masterpiece, of your poetry. Lord, could our focus not be upon ourselves, but upon you? Let us not get wrapped up in us and what we can do and what we can accomplish, but let us get wrapped up in you. Lord, if we're going to rejoice in something, let us rejoice in the fact that our pots, these earthen vessels that we live in, have cracks in them. Or as Paul says, that we shall rejoice in our weaknesses, for it is in our weaknesses that your strength is seen and made evident. Lord, I pray that our lives would be a demonstration of you. That as culture gets darker, as things get harder, Lord, I pray that our lives would merely be a declaration, a mouthpiece screaming forth the reality of who you are. That, that our life is a big finger pointing to the reality of Jesus. That when someone looks at our life, they, yeah, they see us, but it's not us that they, they see and behold, it's, it's you. And Lord, as Amy Carmichael said, if there's anything hindering that reality, Lord, would you, would you convict us? Would, would you bring your your spotlight, search us and try us and see if there's any wicked way within us. And Lord, would you remove any impurity? Would you remove any wickedness? Remove any idolatry? Hey, would you remove any selfishness? Would you remove any and everything that doesn't point to you in our lives? Lord, I want my life to be a beacon in one direction, which is you. So this poem that you have written in my life, let it have one word, let it be one declaration. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Lord, you are the great poet. Thank you for the privilege that we get to be your workmanship, 
we get to be your poetry to this world. Love you, Lord. We just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.